Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochiden. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. As I say every episode, if you're enjoying this program, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts, preferably five stars, which will help more friends find the show. And if you have any suggestions for how I can make the show better, or if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, email me at americanepistles at gmail.com. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter of the show via Patreon, for which you will receive not only my undying gratitude, but early access to episodes, whether you contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. Go to americanepistles.com and click support on the main menu. We're nearing the end of our run with Eleanor Rupert. Today's episode has a mid-length letter followed by several short ones. The first one made me angry. I'd forgotten that Eleanor was born and raised in the South in the 19th century. The last time there was anything racist in a letter was when she was quoting Zebulon Pike, and he hasn't been around for several episodes. In this letter, Eleanor uses the N-word to describe an extremely offensive game which I hated reading and recording. I thought for a moment about leaving it out, but then that wouldn't be Eleanor's whole story. Or I could have said, forget Eleanor, I'm not doing any more episodes. But after sleeping on it, I remembered what changed the American Revolution for me as a student of history. And that was studying the actors as fully formed, fallible human beings. Their accomplishments were incredible. Their legacy, enduring. They defied the British Empire, with a lot of help from the French. They devised a brand new government, and then voluntarily limited the power of that government. They also worried about being up to the task of governing. George Washington did, anyway. And he also complained about his stepchildren. They were unfaithful to their wives, Looking at you, Alexandra Hamilton. They very eloquently decried slavery when they were taxed without parliamentary representation. While enslaving a race of people that they knew was intelligent enough to compose poetry, like Phyllis Wheatley, write almanacs, like Benjamin Banneker, master French culinary techniques, like James Hemings, and manage their affairs, like an enslaved man we know as Billy. Thomas Jefferson deemed the enslaved Sally Hemings human enough to impregnate her. The founders knew that there was no, is no, inherent characteristic that justified the enslavement of people with African ancestry. Washington even wrote to a friend in 1774, quote, We must assert our rights, or submit to every imposition that can be heaped upon us, till custom and use will make us as tame and abject slaves as the blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway. End quote. Almost a decade later, James Madison wrote the following to his father after taking Billy with him to Philadelphia for the Continental Congress. Billy was the only enslaved person that the father of the Bill of Rights would emancipate. He writes, I am persuaded 
his mind is too thoroughly tainted to be a fit companion for fellow slaves in Virginia. The laws here do not admit of his being sold for more than seven years. I do not expect to get near the worth of him, but cannot think of punishing him by transportation merely for coveting that liberty for which we have paid the price of so much blood, and have proclaimed so often to be the right and worthy the pursuit of every human being. They knew. And studying these contradictions has made them more compelling to me, not less. They were bold, they were brilliant, and infuriating in their hypocrisy. The show notes have links to Washington's, Madison's, and Jefferson's own words on the subject of slavery. There are links to information about all of the people I named, and to Monticello's research on Sally Hemings, as well as to correspondence between Washington and Wheatley and Jefferson and Banneker. And now, for the sake of telling Eleanor's whole story, presenting her full humanity, I bring you her Christmas letter, complete with racist, odious party game. January 6, 1913. My dear friend, I have put off writing you and thanking you for your thought for us until now, so that I could tell you of our very happy Christmas and our deer hunt all at once. To begin with, Mr. Stewart and Junior have gone to Boulder to spend the winter. Clyde wanted his mother to have a chance to enjoy our boy, so, as he had to go, he took Junior with him. Then, those of my dear neighbors nearest my heart decided to prevent a lonely Christmas for me, so, on December 21st, came Mrs. Louderer, laden with an immense plum pudding and a big worst, and a little later came Mrs. O'Shaughnessy, with her frisky pony, Chief, her scarlet sweater making a bright bit of color against our snow-wrapped horizon. Her face and ways are just as bright and cheery as can be. When she saw Mrs. Louderer's pudding and sausage, she said she had brought nothing because she had come to get something to eat herself. And, she continued, quote, It is a private opinion of mine that my neighbors are so glad to see me that they are glad to feed me. End quote. Now, wouldn't that little speech have made her welcome anywhere? Well, we were hilariously planning what Mrs. O'Shaughnessy called a witty Christmas and getting supper when a great stamping off of snow proclaimed a newcomer. It was Gavotte, and we were powerfully glad to see him because the hired man was going to a dance and we knew Gavotte would contrive some unusual amusement. He had heard that Clyde was going to have a deer drive and didn't know that he had gone, so he had come down to join the hunt just for the fun and was very much disappointed to find there was going to be no hunt. After supper, however, his good humor returned and he told us story after story of big hunts he had had in Canada. He worked up his own enthusiasm as well as ours and at last proposed that we have a drive of our own for a Christmas joy. He said he would take a station and do the shooting if one of us would do the driving. So, right now, I reckon I had better tell you how it is done. There are many little parks in the mountains where the deer can feed, although now most places are so deep in snow that they can't walk in it. For that reason, they have trails to water and to different feeding grounds, and they can't get through the snow except along these paths. You see how easy it would be for a man hidden on the trail to get one of these beautiful creatures if someone coming from another direction startled them so they came along that particular path. 
So they made their plans. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy elected herself driver. Two miles away is a huge mountain called Filipico, and deer were said to be plentiful up there. At one time, there had been a sawmill on the mountain, and there were a number of deserted cabins in which we could make ourselves comfortable. So it was planned that we go up the next morning, stay all night, have the hunt the following morning, and then come home with our game. Well, we were all astir early the next morning, and soon grain, bedding, and chuck box were in the wagon. Then Mrs. Louderer, the kinder, and myself piled in. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy bestrode Chief, Gavat stalked on ahead to pick our way, and we were off. It was a long, tedious climb, and I wished over and over that I had stayed at home, but it was altogether on Baby's account. I was so afraid that he would suffer, but he kept warm as toast. The day was beautiful, and the views many times repaid us for any hardship we had suffered. It was three o'clock before we reached the old mill camp. Soon we had a roaring fire, and Gavotte made the horses comfortable in one of the cabins. They were bedded in soft, dry sawdust and were quite as well off as if they had been in their own stalls. Then some rough planks were laid on blocks and we had our first meal since breakfast. We called it supper and we had potatoes roasted in the embers, Mrs. Louderer's worst, which she had been calmly carrying around on her arm like a hoop and which was delicious with the bread that Gavotte toasted on long sticks. We had steaming coffee and we were all happy. Even Baby clapped his hands and crowed at the unusual sight of an open fire. After supper, Gavotte took a little stroll and returned with a couple of grouse for our breakfast. After dark, we sat around the fire eating peanuts and listening to Gavotte and Mrs. Louderer telling stories of their different great forests. But soon, Gavotte took his big sleeping bag and retired to another cabin, warning us that we must be up early. Our improvised beds were the most comfortable things. I love the flicker of an open fire, the smell of the pines, the pure, sweet air. And I went on to sleep, thinking how blessed I was to be able to enjoy the things I love most. It seemed only a short time until someone knocked on our door and we were all wide awake in a minute. The fire had burned down and only a soft, indistinct glow from the embers lighted the room while through a hole in the roof I could see a star glimmering frostily. It was Gavotte at the door, and he had called through a crack, saying he had been hearing queer noises for an hour and he was going to investigate. He had called us so that we need not be alarmed should we hear the noise and not find him. We scrambled into our clothes quickly and ran outdoors to listen. I can never describe to you the weird beauty of a moonlit night among the pines when the snow is sparkling and gleaming, the deep silence unbroken, even by the snapping of a twig. We stood shivering and straining our ears and were about to go back to bed when we heard faintly a long-drawn wail as if all the suffering and sorrow on earth were bound up in that one sound. We couldn't tell which way it, was, it came from. It seemed to vibrate through the air and chill our hearts. I had heard that panthers cried that way, but Gavotte said it was not a panther. He said the engine and saws had been moved from where we were to another spring across the canyon a mile away, where timber for sawing was more plentiful, 
But he supposed everyone had left the saw when the water froze, so they couldn't saw. He added that someone must have remained and was perhaps in need of help. And if we were not afraid, he would leave us and go see what was wrong. We went in, made up the fire, and sat in silence, wondering what we should see or hear next. Once or twice that agonized cry came shivering through the cold midnight. After an age, we heard Gavat crunching through the snow, whistling cheerily to reassure us. He had crossed the canyon to the new mill camp, where he found two women, loggers' wives, and some children. One of the women, he said, was so versik, twas she who was wailing so, and it was the kind of seek where we could be of every help and comfort. Mrs. Lauderer stayed and took care of the children while Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and I followed after Gavat, panting and stumbling through the snow. Gavat said he suspected they were short of needfuls, so he had filled his pockets with coffee and sugar, took in a bottle of some milk I brought for baby, and his own flask of whiskey, without which he never travels. At last, after what seemed to me hours of scrambling through the snow, through deepest gloom, where pines were thickest, and out again into patches of white moonlight, we reached the ugly clearing where the new camp stood. Gavat escorted us to the door and then returned to our camp. Entering, we saw the poor, little, soon-to-be mother huddled on her poor bed, while an older woman stood near, warning her that the oil would soon be all gone and they would be in the darkness. She told us that the sick one had been in pain all the day before and much of the night, and that she herself was completely worn out. So Mrs. O'Shaughnessy sent her to bed, and we took charge. Secretly, I felt it all to be a big nuisance to be dragged out from my warm, comfortable bed to traipse through the snow at that time of night. But the moment poor little Molly spoke, I was glad I was living, because she was a poor little Southern girl whose husband is a Mormon. He had been sent on a mission to Alabama, and the poor little girl had fallen in love with his handsome face and knew nothing of Mormonism, so she had run away with him. She thought it would be so grand to live in the glorious West with so splendid a man as she believed her husband to be. But now she believed she was going to die, and she was glad of it because she could not return to her folks. And she said she knew her husband was dead because he and another woman's husband both of whom had intended to stay there all winter and cut logs, had gone two weeks before to get their summer's wages and buy supplies. Neither man had come back, and there was not a horse or any other way to get out of the mountains to hunt them. So they believed the men to be frozen somewhere on the road. Rather a dismal prospect, wasn't it? Molly was just longing for some little familiar thing, so I was glad I have not yet gotten rid of my southern way of talking. No Westerner can ever understand a Southerner's need of sympathy, and, however kind their hearts, they are unable to give it. Only a Southerner can understand how dear our peculiar words and phrases are. And poor little Molly took new courage when she found out I knew what she meant when she said she was just honing after a friendly voice. Well, soon we had the water hot and had filled some bottles and placed them around our patient, and after a couple of hours, the tiny little stranger came into the world. It had been necessary to have a great fire in order to have light. So as soon as we got baby dressed, I opened the door a little to cool the room, and Molly saw the morning star twinkling merrily. 
She said, Oh, that's what I'll call my dear little girlie. Star. Dear little star. It is strange, isn't it? How our spirits will revive after some great ordeal. Molly had been sure she was going to die and saw nothing to live for. Now that she had a cup of hot milk and held her red little baby close, she was just as happy and hopeful as if she had never left her best friends and home to follow the uncertain fortunes of young Will Crosby. So she and I talked of ash hoppers, smokehouses, cotton patches, goobers, poke greens, and shoats until she fell asleep. Soon day was aboard, and so we went outdoors for a fresh breath. The other woman came out just then to ask after Molly. She invited us into her cabin, and oh, the little Mormons were everywhere. Poor half-clad little things. Some sourdough biscuit and a can of condensed milk was everything they had to eat. The mother explained to us that their men had gone to get things for them, but had not come back, so she guessed they had got drunk and were likely in jail. She told it in a very unconcerned manner. Poor thing. Years of such experience had taught her that blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall not be disappointed. She said that if Molly had not been sick, she would have walked down out of the mountains and got help. Just then, two shots rang out in quick succession, and soon Gavat came staggering along with a deer across his shoulders. That he left for the family. From our camp, he had brought some bacon and butter for Molly, and, poor though it may seem, it was a treat for her. Leaving the woman to dress the venison with her oldest boy's aid, we put out across the canyon for our breakfast. Beside our much-beaten trail hung the second version, and we reached our camp and had our own delicious breakfast of grouse, bread, butter, and coffee. Gavat took Chubb and went out for venison. In a short time, we were rolling homeward. Of course, it didn't take us nearly so long to get home because it was downhill, and the road was clearly marked, so in a couple hours we were home. Gavat knew the two loggers were in Green River and were then at work storing ice for the rail railroad, but he had not known that their wives were left as they were. The men actually had got drunk, lost their money, and were then trying to replace it. After we debated a bit, we decided we could not enjoy Christmas with those people in want up there in the cold. Then we got busy. It is 60 miles to town, although our nearest point to the railroad is but 40. So you see, it was impossible to get to town to get anything. You should have seen us. Every old garment that had ever been left by men who have worked here was hauled out, and Mrs. O'Shaughnessy's deft fingers soon had a pile of garments cut. We kept the machine humming until far into the night, as long as we could keep our eyes open. All the next day we sewed as hard as we could, and Gavotte cooked as hard as he could. We had intended to have a tree for, for Jereen, so we had a box of candles and a box of Christmas snow. Gavotte asked for all the bright paper we could find. We had lots of it, and I think you would be surprised at the possibilities of a little waste paper. He made gorgeous birds, butterflies, and flowers out of paper that once wrapped parcels. Then he asked us for some silk thread, but I had none, so he told us to comb our hair and give him the combings. We did, and with a drop of mucilage, he would fasten a hair to a bird's back and then hold it up by the hair. At a few feet's distance, it looked exactly as though the bird was flying. I was glad I had a big stone jar full of fondant, 
because we had a lot of fun shaping and coloring candies. We offered a prize for the best representation of a and we had two dozen chocolate-covered things that might have been anything from a monkey to a mouse. Mrs. Louderer cut up her big plum pudding and put it in a dozen small bags. These Gavotte carefully covered with green paper. Then we tore up the holly wreath that Aunt Mary sent me and put a sprig in the top of each green bag of pudding. I never had so much fun in my life as I had preparing for that Christmas. At 10 o'clock, the morning of the 24th, we were again on our way up the mountainside. We took shovels so we could clear a road if need be. We had dinner at the old camp, and then Gavotte hunted us a way out to the new, and we smuggled our things into Molly's cabin so the children could have a real surprise. Poor, hopeless little things. Theirs was, indeed, a dull outlook. Gavotte busied himself in preparing one of the empty cabins for us and in making the horses comfortable. He cut some pine boughs to do that with, and so they paid no attention when, we, when he cut a small tree. In the meantime, we had cleared everything from Molly's cabin but her bed. We wanted her to see the fun. The, cab the children were sent to the spring to water the horses, and they were all allowed to ride, so that took them out of the way, while Gavotte nailed the tree to a box he had filled with dirt to hold it steady. There were four women of us and Gavotte, so it was only the work of a few moments to get the tree ready, and it was the most beautiful one I ever saw. Your largest bell, dear Mrs. Coney, dangled from the topmost branch. Gavotte had attached, had attached a long stout wire to your Santa Claus, so he was able to make him dance frantically without seeming to do so. The hairs that held the birds and butterflies could not be seen, and the effect was beautiful. We had a bucket of apples rubbed bright, and these we fastened to the tree just as they grew on their own branches. The puddings looked pretty, and we have done up the parcels that held the clothes as attractively as we could. We saved the candy and the peanuts to put in their little stockings. As soon as it was dark, we lighted the candles, and then their mother called the children. Oh, if you could have seen them! It was the very first Christmas tree they had ever seen, and they didn't know what to do. The very first present Gavotte handed out was a pair of trousers for eight-year-old Brig, but he just stood up and stared at the tree until his brother, next in size, with an eye to the main chance, got behind him and pushed him forward, all the time exclaiming, Go on, can't you? They ain't doing nothing to you. They's just doing something for you. Still, Brig could not put out his hand. He just shook his tousled, sandy head and said he wanted a bird. So the fun kept up for an hour. Santa had for Molly a package of oatmeal, a pound of butter, a mason jar of cream, and a dozen eggs so that she could have suitable food to eat until something could be done. After the presents had all been distributed, we put the phonograph on a box and had a dandy concert. We played There Were Shepherds, Ave Maria, and Sweet Christmas Bells. Only we older people cared for those. So then we had Arawana, Silver Bells, Rainbow, Red Wing, and such songs. How delighted they were. Our concert lasted two hours, and by that time the little fellows were so sleepy that the excitement no longer affected them and they were put to bed. But they hung up their stockings first, and even Molly hung hers up. 
We filled them with peanuts and candy, putting the lion's share of into Molly's stocking. Next morning, the happiness broke out in new spots. The children were all clean and warm, though I'm afraid I can't brag on the fit of all the clothes. But the pride of the wearers did away with the necessity of a fit. The mother was radiantly thankful for a warm petticoat, that it was made of a blanket too small for a bed didn't bother her, and the stripes were around the bottom anyway. Molly openly rejoiced in her new gown, and that it was made of ugly gray outing flannel didn't know she didn't know or care. Baby Star Crosby looked perfectly sweet in her little new clothes, and her little gown had blue sleeves, and they and they thought a white skirt only added to its beauty. And so it was about everything. We all got so much out of so little. I will never again allow even the smallest thing to go to waste. We were everyone just as happy as could be, almost as delighted as Molly was over her. And there was very little given that had not been thrown away or was not just odds and ends. There was never anything more true than that it is more blessed to give than to receive. We certainly had a delicious dinner too, and we let Molly have all she wanted that we dared allowed her to eat. The roast venison was so good that we tempted her to taste to let her taste it, but we thought better of it. As soon as dinner was over, we packed our belongings and betook ourselves homeward. It was just dusk when we reached home. Away off on a bare hill, a wolf barked. A big owl hooted lonesomely among the pines, and soon a pack of yelping coyotes went scampering across the frozen waste. It was not the Christmas I had in mind when I sent the card, but it was a dandy one, just the same. With best wishes for you for a happy, happy new year. Sincerely, your friend, Eleanor Rupert Stewart. In the next letter, Eleanor recounts the joys of homesteading. As you listen, keep in mind the experiences that I shared in my episode on women homesteaders. Letter number three was written by Eleanor's daughter, Jereen. February 26, 1913. Dear Mrs. Coney, I think you will excuse my mama for not writing to thank you for Black Beauty when I tell you why. I wanted to thank you myself, and I wanted to hear it read first so I could very truly thank. Mama always said horses do not talk, but now she knows they do since she read the dear little book. I have known it a long time. My own pony told me the story is very true. Many times I have seen men treat horses very badly, but our Clyde don't and won't let a workman stay if he hurts stock. I'm very glad. Mr. Edding came past one day with a load of hay. He had too much load to pull up hill and there was much ice and snow, but he think he can make them go up so he fighted and sweared, but they could not get up. Mama tried to lend him some horse to help, but he was angry and determined to make his own pull it. But at last, he had to take off some hay. I wish he may read my black beauty. Our Clyde is still away. We're going to visit Stella. Mama was driving. The horses ran away. We go very fast as the wind. I almost fall out. 
Mama hanged on to the lines. If she let go, we may all be killed. At last, she ran them into a fence. They stop, and a man ran to help, so we are well, but Mama's hands and arms are still so sore, so she can't write you yet. My brother Calvin is very sweet. God had to give him to us because he squealed so much he stirred the angels. We're not angels, so he don't stirb us. I thank you for my good little book, and I love you for it too. Very speakfully, Jereen Rupert. A few months later, Eleanor writes to sing the praises of Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and give an update on Molly's baby. May 5th, 1913. Dear Mrs. Coney, Your letter of April 25th certainly was a surprise, but a very welcome one. We are so rushed with spring work that we don't even go to the office for the mail, and I owe you letters and thanks. I keep promising myself the pleasure of writing you and keep putting it off until I can have more leisure, but that time never gets here. I am so glad when I can bring a little of this big, clean, beautiful outdoors into your apartment for you to enjoy, and I can think of nothing that would give me more happiness than to bring the West and its people to others who could not otherwise enjoy them. If I could only take them from whatever is worrying them and give them this bracing mountain air, glimpses of the scenery, a smell of the pines and the sage, if I could only make them feel the free, ready sympathy and hospitality of these frontier people, I am sure their worries would diminish and my happiness would be complete. Little Star Crosby is growing to be the sweetest little child. Her mother tells me that she is going back yon when she gets a little mo' richer. I'm afraid you give me too much credit for being of help to poor little Molly. It wasn't that I am so helpful, but that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. It was Mrs. O'Shaughnessy who was the real help. She is a woman of great courage and decision and of splendid sense and judgment. A few days ago, a man she had working for her got his fingernail mashed off and neglected to care for it. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy examined it and found that gangrene had set in. She didn't tell him, but made various preparations and then told him she had heard that if there was danger of blood po- poisoning, it could show if the finger was placed on wood and then and the patient looked toward the sun. She said the person who looked at the finger could then see if there was any poison. So the man placed his finger on the chopping block and before he could bat his eye, she had chopped off the black swollen finger. It was so sudden and unexpected that there seemed to be no pain. Then Mrs. O'Shaughnessy showed him the green streak already starting up his arm. The man seemed dazed and she was afraid of shock, so she gave him a dose of morphine and whiskey. Then with a quick stroke of a razor, she laid open the green streak and immersed his whole arm in a strong solution of bichloride of mercury for 20 minutes. She then dressed the wound with absorbent cotton, saturated with olive oil and carbolic acid, bundled her patient into a buggy, and drove 45 miles that night to get him to a doctor. The doctor told us that only her quick action and knowledge of what to do saved the man's life. I was surprised that you have had a letter from Jereen. I knew she was writing to you that day, but I was feeling very stiff and sore from the runaway and had lain down. She kept asking me how to spell words until I told her I was too tired and wanting to sleep. While I was asleep, the man came for the mail, so she sent her letter. 
I have your address on the back of the writing pad, so she knew she had it right, but I suspect that was all she had right. She had written you many letters, but I have never allowed her to send them because she misspells, but that time she stole a march on me. The books you sent her, Black Beauty and Alice in Wonderland, have given her more pleasure than anything she has ever had. She just loves them and is saving them, she says, for her own little girls. She is very confident that the stork will one day visit her and give her a very many little girls. They are to be of assorted sizes. She says she can't see why I order all my babies little and red and squally. Says she thinks God had just as soon let me have larger ones, especially as I get so many from him. One day before long, I'll get busy and write you of a visit I shall make to a Mormon bishop's household. Polygamy is still practiced. Very truly your friend, Eleanor Rupert Stewart. Last but not least, we get a little bit of the story of how Eleanor and Clyde first met. June 12, 1913. Dear Mrs. Coney, Your letter of the 8th to hand, and in order to catch you before you leave, I'll answer at once and not wait for time. I always think I shall do better with more time, but with three bairns, garden, chickens, cows, and housework, I don't seem to find much time for anything. Now for the first question. My maiden name was Pruitt, so when I'm putting on airs, I sign Eleanor Pruitt Stewart. I don't think I have ever written anything that Clyde would object to, so he can still stay upon the pedestal Scotch custom puts him upon and remain the Stewart. Indeed, I don't think you are too inquisitive, and I am glad to tell you how I happened to meet the good mon. It all happened because I had a stitch in my side. When I was a housekeeper at the nursery, I also had to attend to the furnace, and, strange but true, the furnace was built across the large basement from where the coal was thrown in, so I had to tote the coal over, and my modus operandi was to fill a tub with coal and then drag it across to the hungry furnace. Well, one day, I felt the catch and got no better fast. And Dr. Name Redacted, punched and prodded, she said, Why, you have the grief. Reverend Father Corrigan had been preparing me to take the civil service examination, and that afternoon a lesson was due. So I went over to let him see how little I knew. I was in pain and was so blue that I could hardly speak without weeping. So I told the Reverend Father how tired I was of the rattle and bang, of the glare and the soot, the smells and the hurry. I told him what I longed for was the sweet, free open, and that I would like to homestead. That was Saturday evening. He advised me to go straight uptown and put an ad in the paper so as to get it into the Sunday paper. I did so, and because I wanted as much rest and quiet as possible, I took Jereen and went uptown and got a nice quiet room. On the following Wednesday, I received a letter from Clyde, who was in Boulder visiting his mother. He was leaving for Wyoming the following Saturday and wanted an interview if his proposition suited me. I was so glad of his offer, but at the same time, I couldn't know what kind of person he was. So, to lessen any risk, I asked him to come to the Sunshine Mission, where Miss Ryan was going to help me size him up. He didn't know that part of it, of course but he stood inspection admirably. I was under the impression he had a son, but he hadn't, 
and he and his mother were the very last of their race. I'm as proud and happy today as I was the day I became his wife. I wish you knew him, but I suspect I'd better not brag too much. Lest you think me not quite sincere. He expected to visit you while he was in Boulder. He went to the stock show, but was with a party, so he planned to go again. But before he could, the man he left here, and whom I dismissed for drunkenness, went to Boulder and told him I was alone. So the foolish thing hurried home to keep me from too hard work. So that is why he was disappointed. Junior can talk quite well, and even Calvin jabbers. The children are all well, and Doreen writes a little every day to you. I've been preparing a set of indoor outings for invalids. You are telling me your invalid friends enjoyed the letters suggested the idea. I thought to write a little outings I take might amuse them, but wanted to write just as I took the little trips while the impressions were fresh. That is why I've not sent them before now. Is it too late? Shall I send them to you? Now this is really not a letter, it is just a reply. I must say good night. It is 12 o'clock and I am so sleepy. I do hope you will have a very happy summer and that you will share your happiness with me in occasional letters. With much love, Eleanor Stewart. In writing, I forgot to say that the Reverend Father thought it a good plan to get a position as a housekeeper for some rancher who would advise me about land and water rights. By keeping house, he pointed out, I could have a home and a living, and at the same time, see what kind of a homestead I could get. This was kind of long for an Eleanor episode. I suppose I could have put the short letters all into their own, but here we are at 39 minutes, and I'm just glad it's over. Eleanor's letters are in the public domain. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu to visit the Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or on Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.